Jesus. I feel like I say this every time, yet I'm acutely aware of my need of you today, uh, perhaps even more so than usual. Um, uh, Spirit, we need you to move in this place and to stir in the hearts of your people. Uh, Lord, where we have need of repentance, we ask that you would lead us faithfully in it, in the joy of the freedom of salvation. Uh, Lord, lead us to be people who more and more are like Jesus, more and more are a part of that um, that holy temple with Christ as the cornerstone that is being built up into his likeness, uh, built up in love towards each other and built up to glorify your name in this world. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, coming to this morning, uh, I'm, I'm, I've been acutely aware, I suppose, of the fact that uh, it's easy coming to this time of year to kind of talk about all of the big positives of, of our country, um, to talk about lots of really, you know, fun things about being in Australia, and there are lots of fun things about being in Australia. Um, but I'm acutely aware also of the fact that that Therefore, what I'm going to go into today might not be the most popular thing with everyone in the world, um, uh, especially maybe even around these parts of the world. Um, there's no call to the human soul that's so uh, unpleasant to hear as the call to repent. Uh, and yet that is a call that I believe we need to hear as a people. Um, it's, a, it's Australia Day today, if you haven't noticed. Uh, different people have different names for it, but that that's, seems to be the broad one that's stuck. Um, it's a day which has become increasingly divisive in recent years in Australia. Um, many, like myself, believe for a really long time that Australia was a, a Australia Day rather was a good day to celebrate living in a, a good country. And it's worth saying there are loads of good things about the country that we live in. I certainly don't want to downplay that reality. Um, we enjoy freedoms and blessings in Australia that really the rest of or much of the rest of the world would consider to be a pipe dream. Uh, a thing that's completely unattainable, at least within their generation or the coming generation in their countries. And yet at the same time, uh, in a country where we have so much uh, wealth, where we are so comfortable, it can be really easy for us to forget that there is a, a, a real brokenness living under the surface in Australia um, and a real brokenness in the history of Australia. Um, and yet as Christians, we, we are uniquely called to not ignore pain and suffering where it exists in this world, not to just turn our face away from it, not to minimise the hurts of others, but to be agents for, for reconciling transformation in this world. Now, there is, I believe, in fact, I'm, I'm certain, a wall of, of pain, of anguish, and even of hostility uh, sometimes in Australia because... Australia is, to a large extent, built on a foundation of division, um, of, of divisive separation, in fact, between ethnic groups, funnily enough. Most notably, that division that exists between white Australians, we'll call it, it's an overgeneralisation, I'm just going to go with it today, and Aboriginal Australians, also probably an overgeneralisation, but we'll go with it. And that's, that, that's what I want to tackle today. Uh, that's what we're sitting down to today. So sorry if you were coming along for the great Southland of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's not, not happening today, nor ever in this church. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but before I do, I want, I want to tell you a story from history. Um, and, and, and this one's not actually from Australian history, don't worry. Um, 
This one goes back a lot, lot further than than at least the post-settlement Australian history. Uh, you know, we will we, we'll get to Australian history, but we want to talk about something that goes back about 2,200 years. Um, now, if you know your your date or your year well, you'll know that that's before Jesus came. Um, it's a thing that goes back in the history of God's people to a time we call the intertestamental period, uh, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, and understand that to some, some extent, though, this story is a story of our family history as God's people. Um, it's, it may be distant from us because of time, but it is close to us because many of the people represented in this story are actually people who we would call brothers and sisters. Um, Pre-Jesus brothers and sisters uh, under the old covenant and, and waiting for his arrival, but still people who lived faithfully looking to God as their salvation. And, um, yeah, it, it's... I want you to understand this, this, though a long time ago, has a personal element to us as God's people. Now, has anyone here heard the name uh, Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes before? I wouldn't blame you if you haven't. There's a few nods from the crowd and, and a few awkward kind of, I don't want to shake my head because I don't want to be that guy. And yet it's not the most commonly known name, Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, here's, here's a really brief history lesson. Alexander the Great. Have we heard the name Alexander the Great? Yeah, we've heard the name Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was the great uh, Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian ruler. He's Greek speaking, brought Greek culture to a large part of the world uh, and and created an enormous, rather impressive empire uh, in, by a very young age. Uh, and then at the age of 32, he up and died for no reason whatsoever. Good on you, Alexander. Um, but his empire at that point was separated off into, into three parts between three of his leading generals. And one of, the, one of the three empires that kind of popped out of this was called the Seleucid Empire after a guy called Seleucus. Uh, and by the second century BC, the Seleucid Empire is ruled by a fella named Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, Epiphanes isn't his surname. Uh, and oh, by the way, that empire included the nation of Israel, or Judea. Um, it was a very small strip of land by this point. Uh, I, I read somewhere, somewhere around the 60-mile mark in diameter. Uh, so what's that? Here to Maitland? Something along those lines. Maybe a little bit further. But um, as a country... Um, now, yeah, Epiphanes wasn't his surname. Epiphanes meant, uh, means rather, manifest God. So he'd kind of taken this title on himself that he was the manifestation of a God. You know, he's Greek pantheon of God, so probably not trying to claim the God, but, but a God. You can imagine that was popular with the Jews of the time. Not. Uh, and under Antiochus, who, who claimed to be a God, the Jews face an increasing persecution and increasing pressure to abandon their faith in the form of persecution. He oversaw a campaign of anti-Judaic uh, behavior. And, and I call it anti-Judaic because it wasn't really racially motivated. It was religiously motivated. Uh, in fact, uh, understanding that fellows like Hitler exist, I'm sure we've heard of Hitler. Um, I think you can still make a really strong case for the fact that Antiochus Epiphanes was the most anti-Jew person who, who has ever ruled a nation in this world. Soldiers would come to, to towns in Judea and demand that people align with Greek culture and therefore leave behind their Jewish religion. Uh, priests and teachers were forced to eat pork. If you know any of the Old Testament law, that was a bit of an abominable thing to them. And, and that, the, the point of it was that they would 
force them to admit that I've defiled myself, I'm no longer Jewish, and I'm Greek. And if they didn't do it, they died. Um, now, I, I should say, I'm going to censor bits of this story today because there are some parts of this story that are just not appropriate for children. Um, but, but we're going we're to skim the edge of that still. Um, mothers who had their children circumcised were subject to death, uh, along with their children. Those who decided to join Greek culture were known as the Hellenists, by the way. Some people did, uh, but they had effectively abandoned following God at that point. But if there, there are two uh, moments that we find in this piece of history of the anti-Jewish action that really just solidify how opposed this Antiochus Epiphanes was to the Jews, not just, not just his regime, but him personally opposed to them. It's the events that happened to people who came to be known in the early church as the Holy Maccabean Martyrs. Uh, they get that name because um, the, the Maccabees was a revolt that came up basically in response to this event. Um, if you want to read about this, you can go to the, the book of Second Maccabees, by the way. It's not in the Bible. It's considered relatively historically reliable, though it's worth a read. Chapter 6 and 7 will get you there. Um, there so, so in chapter 6, we read uh, a story of an old teacher named Eliezer, or Eliza, I'm not sure. Um, and, uh, and then in chapter 7, of a mother and her seven boys. The old man Eliezer um, is the first one. He's, he, so he's a teacher of the law. He's probably a priest or a scribe. And he's commanded to eat the pork and so denounce his faith. He refuses for, for obvious reasons, even when given the option of just pretending to eat pork in front of other people to convince them that he'd eaten it, whilst actually eating a piece of beef that was maybe dressed up like pork. He refuses. He won't defile himself or lead others to do the same. And so he dies, uh, a torturous death. Uh, and his last words are recorded as, the Lord possesses all holy knowledge. He knows I could have escaped these terrible sufferings and death. Yet he also knows that I gladly suffer these things because I fear him. These are good last words. I could live with those as my last words. That's how chapter six of the, the book closes. Chapter seven opens with the story of this mother and her seven children. They face the same test. They're commanded to eat pork. I did read in one place, people theorized that Eliezer might have been their teacher personally. but It's not specified in the book. They're told, eat the pork, deny your faith. Uh, but this time we read in the text that actually it was Antiochus himself who is the antagonist here, present in the occasion. He's, he's the one giving the orders and then his soldiers are filling them out. But he's, he's there in front of this family. And uh, that, uh, that means that this is almost certainly happening, actually, just, just a side note, in the capital city of the empire, because that's where, where Antiochus is said to be at the time. Um, now, they refuse. Uh, he has the, the first son brutally killed uh, in front of his six brothers and his mother in a way that is just beyond terror. This is the bit that I'm leaving out. Uh, if you're wondering, well, he said he was censoring in this, and this is pretty hardcore. That, that's the bit I'm skipping. Um, then, he, then he does the same with the second brother, uh, commanding him to eat and then brutally killing him when he refuses. And then the third and then the fourth, and then the fifth, and then the sixth, and then with the seventh, he tempts him with riches and with fame and with friendship to the king, uh, but the, sixth, the seventh brother won't deny God, and so he dies, and then last of all, the mother dies. 
And, uh, and if you read it, they each give a fairly fantastic final statement uh, before they die. And the point isn't that these were isolated incidents at the time. The point is that they are a key example of this widespread persecution for the Jews at that time. But imagine that, you know, there at the heart of the empire, the very king himself, the king of the empire, himself torturing and killing these Jews for their faith. And all of this less than 200 years before the New Testament opens. Yeah, I, I think we get to reading the New Testament sometimes. This is a side note. And, and we read about how the Jews didn't much like the Gentiles and didn't want to get along with them. And we go, well, that's a bit racist, wasn't it? We wouldn't have made that mistake. But kind of when you see this in the history, it makes a bit more sense, doesn't it? Like when you know that the dominant culture of the day and the dominant culture by the time of Jesus was still Greek because of Alexander the Great, because of the Seleucid Empire. The Romans had taken over, but the culture was still Greek. Romans are a whole nother story of persecution. Um, doesn't it make sense? Imagine, imagine the collective pain that you would feel as a people because these things had happened. Imagine the, the collective hatred that could really easily crop up in you towards the people of the culture who'd done this to you. I mean, the empire changed, the culture was the same. You could look around you and see, wow, you know, they came in to bring Hellenistic culture and they're still here. They're still all around us. These people who killed, you know, maybe that was your great-grandmother. Or, or, you know, probably not because all her sons got murdered. But there you go. You know, by the time of the, the early New Testament church, this is still what's surrounding them. There, there was this immense wall of hostility dividing Jew from Gentile, a wall that from every worldly angle was just insurmountable. It was never going to get crossed. It was never going to get broken down. Can you understand? Can you feel how painful it would have been to be a Jew in that? Maybe a little bit. Like obviously, I don't think we can get there fully. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to be tricky here. I'm not trying to be sneaky. Uh, but I've got two reasons that I'm telling you that story this morning. The first, of course, being to try to bring you into something of what it feels like to be an Aboriginal person living in Australia today. The, the story of the Maccabean martyrs, it's... Um, isn't recent or, or ethnically related to us, yet it is related to us as a people by Jesus. They are our family in Jesus. Um, They're our brothers and sister in Jesus. For Aboriginal Australians, the, the pain is a lot more recent than that. We could talk about the stolen generations that continued up until 19, the 1970s. Uh, we could talk about uh, the current day uh, discrepancies in all sorts of areas between Aboriginal people and uh, other Australians, uh, many of which just root back in the issues that have happened in the past. But what I'd like to highlight for you, what really nails at home to me, especially in, in light of that story of Antiochus, uh, is the huge number of Aboriginal massacres that have happened in the history of Australia. We didn't, I, I didn't get taught about these in school. I don't know about you. It didn't come up in, in Australian studies. From 1776 onwards, um, current estimates are somewhere around the 250. It's not 250 people, that's 250 massacres, each with at least six people killed at a time. Many with, with a lot, lot more than that. Yeah, just quiz on Australian history. Does anyone know when the last massacre, the last sanctioned massacre of 
Australians, uh, Aboriginal Australians was? Anyone want to hazard a guess? I know it's a dangerous turf that I'm pull, pulling you into there. For about 100 years? You're not too far off. Um, 1928. That's living memory. You know, there, there are people in our nursing homes today who would have been around at that point and not in our nursing homes. Coniston Massacre in which uh, the, the official record shows that 31 Aboriginal people were killed. Uh, the, the likely number, according to historians, is somewhere more around, up, kind of up to the 200 mark. Um, but the official record very much downplayed the numbers. It's really easy for us to brush over things like this. I am, you are, we are Australian. But, but the history of division in this country is significant. And for Aboriginal people, it's really not something you can brush over. It's a reality that's still very present. It's a reality that still has real ramifications, physical ramifications for your life today. Like just, just imagine the family ramifications. If, you know, maybe you're descended from the people group where the Coniston massacre happened. And maybe, you know, three quarters of your family died at this point. Imagine if three quarters of your family died now, your, your extended family how that would work out for your family in 100 years' time, differently to how you expect it might now. It would be huge. You would carry the hurt of that still. I was at a church in Adelaide recently, um, Anchor Church, actually, over in Adelaide. It's, it's basically our sister church in this state. They're, they're an awesome bunch over there. Um, when we were off on leave, uh, I was sitting next to a young Aboriginal girl, um, a woman, uh, who had a... I had a brief chat with during the prayer time in the service. She was telling me about how survival day was coming up and, and what they were doing for it. Um, I, I, being me, I gave her just this kind of confused look and she just explained, oh, that, that's what we call January 26th. I don't mind as a title, by the way. I've heard invasion day. I think that's inflammatory. I think survival day is pretty awesome. You see, there's, there's a deep-seated hurt. There's a deep-seated anguish for Aboriginal Australians that isn't just going to go away. Sometimes we act like it is. Um, it's, a, it's a hurt which, as followers of Jesus, we cannot and should not just ignore or downplay. Now, the question you might be hitting yourself on right now is, why is John doing this to me? I got out of bed for this. <laughs> Um, is it because I want to drag you through the guilt of it and really make you feel the shame? No, that's not my job here as a pastor. I do want us to feel the weight of it, the significance of it, how it might feel for an Aboriginal person, but no, I'm not here to put you through the guilt. I'm telling you all of this because it leads us to one unavoidable question, which is, is there anything that can breach the wall? Is there anything that can get past the wall of pain, anguish and hostility? Is there anything that can reconcile those who are divided by such a massive divide? I mean, imagine it. If, you're, if your relatives were there, would you feel like this was something you could get past, that you could sit in the same room as those people, that you could get along with them or their descendants, you know? If you're one of those children from the stolen generation who is now a grown adult, probably similar age to a lot of the people in this room, would you feel like that was something that you could ever get past? 
that could ever be dealt with and, and that you could reconcile with the culture that did it to you? Is there anything that can bridge that gap after that much hurt? And, and let me tell you, there are plenty of people who will answer that question with a big yes. Oh, we missed that. Sorry. There was a map of the massacres. There you go. The red dots are the bigger ones. Um, there are plenty of people who answer the question with a yes. We can solve the problem. In fact, uh, we spent four and a half years living in Alice Springs. Uh, well, I spent four and a half. Crystal spent four. And uh, Owen only got five months. The other two weren't even born yet. But uh, in our time there, there were loads of people, you know, loads of programs that were either existing or being set up that went, you know, this is going to solve the problem here. Loads of politicians coming in with an answer. Loads of activists coming in with an answer who didn't like the politicians. Loads of everyone, everyone trying to solve the issue. Healthcare departments, government departments, private health concerns, private mental health concerns, private everythings, yeah. bushfire conversation groups, everything you could think of. All trying to say, yeah, yeah, there's something we can do about this. We can fix this. But the funny thing is, um, in that place where people from every initiative and every organization, every community uh, are trying to fix it, eventually our experience was everyone ends up throwing their hands in the air and just saying, you know, this brokenness is just a thing. It's not something that we can deal with. I, I worked in the health system a lot there. And, and every nurse and doctor eventually just went, you know, this isn't something we're here to fix. This is just, we're, we're the Band-Aid, basically. So I ask again, is there any power that cannot come over this, this wall of hostility, the wall of pain? Now, the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesian church in that little reading we had today, remember that, that you at one time, sorry, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's us by the way, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now remember what Antiochus Epiphanes did, right? And what his culture did. It wasn't just him personally. He didn't personally go around and do all of it. Paul's saying there was a time when you Gentiles were not a part of the people of God. And frankly, we didn't want you to be. You, know, you can read between the lines, we hated you guys. We didn't want you in the community of faith. But then Paul goes on to say, and this is amazing in light of what we know, right? Now in Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Understand how huge that is, right? Here is the, the good news of the gospel in powerful application. You want to know if the gospel does things? Cultures and nations and peoples may be divided by walls that seemed unbreakable to us, but the blood of Jesus breaks them down. The blood of Jesus reconciles what we see as irreconcilable. How does that work? Well, first off, uh, the blood of Jesus frees us from our sin, and therefore it frees us to repent towards others. You can meaningfully repent if you know it's dealt with. 
chapter one of Ephesians, Peter, uh, Paul rather, wrote, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You see, if you are one of those who has been saved by Jesus, then you can know for sure that your sin really is dealt with. And only then are you freed to walk in genuine repentance toward those you've sinned against. Only when you know that you have the riches of the grace of God in Jesus that cannot be taken away, can you genuinely step out in repentance and seek reconciliation. Now, on a significant side note, uh, really significant side note, um, some might agree with that as a statement, but then when you get to the subject of repentance toward Aboriginal Australians, say, why should I repent? It's a valid question. It's a good question. I didn't massacre any Aboriginal people personally. I didn't uh, take part in the stolen generation. Why would I need to repent? And to be honest, that's a logic that I really held to for a really long time. But the Bible really doesn't allow for it is the problem. Uh, and, and you have to grapple with scripture on this if you're a Christian, not just with man. Let me give you a couple of brief comments. The first, probably most significant, our individualistic culture would encourage us to think that, but, uh, but the Bible teaches something that's not individualistic. We're called to individual repentance, absolutely, in the Bible. Uh, but in the Bible, we also see God judging whole nations for their sin. We see God uh, saying to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 that he will spare the city of Sodom, on the other hand, for the sake of ten righteous people. Maybe, maybe the case in point of this whole corporate repentance idea is Daniel chapter 9. Uh, we, see, we see there Daniel repenting for the sin of the people of Israel generationally, not just for the people of his day. He repents for the sin of his fathers before God. He repents for the sins of the kings before God, kings that weren't even around at that point. And I think the reason that that's valid is that he's still a part of the culture that produced it. And so even if he didn't commit the specific sins himself, he's still actually a contributor to a part of that. And if we look at the, the sins committed with racial motivation in Australia, I think we can make sense of that. Um, we could say, well, sure, I didn't do it myself. But have you considered that you benefit from them? Personally. Each one of us. To some extent, the comfort and the relative uniformity of culture that we enjoy in Australia, to some extent, it's a blessing of God. Um, to some extent, it's built on the fact that we wiped out people and culture when we arrived. I don't have the specific number on me here, but, but look up, if you want, the number of pe Aboriginal people they think were in Australia at settlement compared to what it is today. It's, it's, it's gone like that. That's a graph. Look it up. Trust me. Or at least it went like that for a very long time. Um, in addition to that, we are a people called to care for the lost and the needy. This is my second reason why we should repent. We're called to be like Jesus towards people. Shouldn't we also repent of our lack of care towards a hurt people in this country? A people with real hurt. You know, we're not talking about social justice warriors here who are hurt over, I don't know, something meaningless. Um, now, shouldn't we repent over our apathy toward those with real gaping pain? That we have just acted like it isn't our problem. 
we should care for all of them. But, but even, you know, even then we could say some of these people are our brothers and sisters in Christ. When Jesus talks in Matthew 25 about the day when he's going to come and sit on his throne and, and sit in judgment over the, the goats and the lambs, you're familiar with this idea, the, the, those who are going to judgment and those who are going to life, what does he say? He says to the one group, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And what does he say to the ones he condemns? As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. He, he condemns them for their inaction, not just for what they did do, but for what they didn't do. What's he, what he's saying isn't that their works are what justifies them, that, that they've, you know, you've done the good work, so congratulations, you can come in, you're perfect. That We know that's not true. Uh, he's holding up the fruit of the action in their lives, and he's saying, if you had believed, because by faith we're saved through grace, if you had believed, is this what you would have done? Is this what you would have produced? Apathy to the hurting when you believed in the one who came to heal the hurting self-centered lack of care for the needy. This is, this is a rebuke to myself, by the way, as much as any. A self-centered lack of care for the needy when I came and gave myself up for those in need. For you when you were in need. We do have real need for repentance. So circling back here, that was, that was my side. The blood of Jesus frees us from our sin and therefore frees us to repent. And it's more than that as well. You see, the reason why white people and Aboriginal people fail to reconcile, the reason why Jews and Greeks failed to reconcile, the reason why uh, black people and white people in apartheid South Africa and post-apartheid South Africa still fail to reconcile, and people of racial and religious groups, um, cultural groups across the world fail to reconcile is because our division is actually greater than just our division between us and each other. It's rooted in something deeper. Right back in the Garden of Eden, when the woman and the man sinned, their relationship with God was broken. And as a result, their relationship with, which, with each other was broken. Do you remember what happened there? Um, they disobey God. They fail to trust in his good word. They eat the fruit. And then when they hear God coming for the first time in history, humanity hides they don't want to see God. Eventually there, he throws them out of his presence. But what happens immediately after they hide, right? When, what happens next? When, when God finds them and asks Adam, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? What does Adam say? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Blame. Nice one, Adam. Uh, having broken the relationship with God, though, do you see what happens? The first thing to happen after that is that our relationship with each other breaks. Consequent to our relationship with God breaking. She made me do it. Or rather, the woman you gave me made me do it. Can you see there how our division with each other roots down in our division with God? How our relationship with each other is broken because our relationship with God is broken. And Adam and Eve become the, the pattern for all of humanity from that point on so that in willful sin we all break relationships. Not necessarily fully, not necessarily entirely, but, but every relationship sits with this root of brokenness in it. Can you see that? Marriages break and fracture. 
families fall apart. Nation wars against nation and people group divides from people group because, because of what happens here, because our relationship with our creator is broken. What that means is that we need reconciliation to God if we're ever to be meaningfully reconciled to each other. And through the cross of Jesus, Paul says that's what he does. Um, Paul continues on in Ephesians 2. I'll read a little bit of what we've already read to make it make sense. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I love that he uses hostile language for killing the hostility. Yes. Um, he, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Do you see what he's saying? In Jesus, by the cross of Jesus, we're reconciled to God and therefore we are being reconciled to one another. Imagine how the garden might have gone differently, right? If, God, if Adam had known that his relationship with God was solid, that, that he had forgiveness for his sin. Adam, did you eat the fruit that I told you? Yes, Lord, I'm sorry. End. History would have been a bit different, it's true. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us from sin and reconciles us to God and therefore equips us to be a people of reconciliation to others to every tribe and tongue and nation, no matter the separation that stands between us. Let me give you two examples. Remember those holy Maccabean martyrs that I mentioned at the start, Eliezer and the mother of the seven sons. Um, remember I said that they were killed for their faith in the most brutal way. Where were they killed? Where did it happen? Does anyone remember? I didn't give a name. Capital city. We got a listener here. Beautiful. Sorry, guys. I'm just... No, it happened in the capital of the empire, a city called Syrian Antioch. Now, Antioch gets its name from a family name, Antiochus. Antiochus, spelt the same. Uh, it was actually named for Antiochus's, I think, grandfather originally, but uh, carried the family name. Uh, so understand, this would have been a pretty offensive-seeming city to the Jews of the day of Paul, right? And less than 200 years later, we see in the book of Acts, the gospel come to Antioch. It was one of the first major Gentile cities to be reached. Uh, and first off, the Hellenistic Jews are reached, those who had abandoned their religion and gone Greek back when Antiochus was around. And then actual Gentiles trusted in Jesus. And together with Jewish Christians, they became one body and the wall of hostility built on murder and persecution of the most brutal kind fell before the cross of Jesus. Not only that, Syrian Antioch uh, became basically the mission base of the New Testament. Uh, if you read the book of Acts, that's what happens from there on in. It becomes the place where Paul bases himself and goes out from. The church is sending out missionaries from Antioch. But this, this place named for Antiochus where these martyrs had died. Paul used Antioch as his mission base. It's like God went, you see, you see this place, the center of hostility between two races. I'm going to demonstrate how powerful my gospel is by making that one of the centers of faith 
where people come together. Not just a little outskirt of it. I'm going to go, you know what? Here in the heart of the hostility, I'm going to plant a heart of faith and it's going to reconcile people. You know, God wasn't even finished there, right? God has sent his people. He sent us, his people, out uh, to bring the reconciliation of the gospel to every people of the earth. In the book of Revelation, John sees this vision. Uh, he says, of a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In the end, gospel will break through every wall. Every racial barrier is no barrier to the gospel. Every personal barrier, the gospel will reconcile humanity to God and therefore to itself. Not the whole of humanity, not every single person, but it will not be stopped where God sends it out. The gospel is our one hope for reconciliation. As we experience reconciliation with God in Jesus, we are led toward humble repentance and reconciliation toward others. And so I want to end today um, really just by stating the position of Gospel Church. I, I'm, I'm leaving you with a whole kettle of fish here of, of how do we go about that. I'm afraid we are not going to dig into that today, uh, but I would love to see some conversations in our church develop out of that, maybe over a barbecue down at the park and maybe going into the future definitely go into the future. But I just want to end by stating what, what I've checked by uh, my fellow elder Matt and is now the official position of Gospel Church toward the issue of relations between Aboriginal and white Australians, um, which is this. Our position is that we repent for the terrible wrongs that were committed against uh, Aboriginal peoples and we trust in the blood of Jesus as the one power that can reconcile the two groups. And on that, I'm going to pray for us, and then Crystal is going to come back up. Jesus, thank you for the, the reconciling power of the gospel. Uh, we thank you for it, first off, for ourselves. Um, we were those people who were alienated, who were strangers from the covenants of grace, who were not in your community and were distant from you and were trundling towards hell. And yet you work your grace powerfully and you've reconciled and you've made one new man from the two. You brought us together in Jesus. We've been made alive by your grace when we were dead. Lord, we, we just want to come in fresh repentance before you and say we acknowledge uh, our hand in the sins of this nation. We acknowledge that freely, and although we acknowledge it with mourning, we also acknowledge it with an edge of joy, because we know that our sin is dealt with in you. And we ask that by the powerful grace of your gospel, you would work a reconciling hand uh, in this country, and in this place, and in this community, and this peninsula. 
Lord, I've seen it. The only power that brings people together, the only power that can breach the wall of hostility is the power of the gospel. So, Lord, we ask that you would work it powerfully. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.